Good evening. I would like to thank you all for coming to tonight's lecture in our three-year Templeton Research Lecture Series on the Constructive Engagement of Science and Religion. My name is Jim Proctor. I'm a faculty member here at UC Santa Barbara in the Department of Geography. Our program entitled Science, Religion, and the Human Experience seeks to shed scholarly light on the ways that science and religion are embedded in, yet seek to transcend the historical, political, psychological, and other contexts defining the human experience. Further information on our program may be found on the tables in the back or on our website, which is listed on the brochures. I'd also encourage you, if you have not done already, to sign up for our email list using the form on the back table or on our website. We will use the email list to distribute information concerning next year's lecture series. Briefly, I would like to acknowledge the generosity of the John Templeton Foundation, uh, who is responsible for this entire lecture series. Um, at UCSB, I would like to acknowledge the support of the College of Letters and Science, the Office of Institutional Advancement, the Office of Instructional Resources, and the Institute for Social, Behavioral, and Economic Research, which is providing administrative support. Finally, this talk tonight is being co-sponsored by UCSB's Department of Sociology. Tonight and last night, we have welcomed to UCSB two well-known and distinguished scholars, both of whom have made fundamental contributions to intellectual thought across many, many disciplines. Last night, we were privileged to hear Hilary Putnam, Kogan University professor at Harvard University, Emeritus, speak on the depths and shallows of experience. Professor Putnam, I'd like to acknowledge your presence this evening and again thank you very much for your contribution to science, religion, and the human experience. I will introduce tonight's speaker, Bruno Latour, soon. But briefly, it is interesting that both professors Latour and Putnam have decided to focus rather more on religion than on science in their talks, for it is primarily their works on science that are most familiar to many of us. Professor Putnam, who spoke last night, is widely known for his writings on realism, which attempt to base knowledge on premises distinct both from the common assumption inherent in much science of metaphysical realism in which truth is determined by correspondence to mind independent objects out there in reality, and certain views on the other end of the extreme, the most obvious of which is various forms of relativism. Professor Latour is similarly known for his writings on science, and perhaps this is where I should give him a proper introduction. Bruno Latour is professor at the Center for the Study of Innovation at the School of Mines in Paris, France. Latour's training is both as a philosopher and as an anthropologist. In the latter respect, he has crossed the Atlantic on many occasions to study us, specifically scientific research at the Salk Institute in La Jolla, California. And this may be where Professor Latour first achieved, innocently or otherwise, his notoriety. In a book published in 1986 entitled Laboratory Life, The Construction of Scientific Facts, that subtitle, which by the way did not read The Social Construction of Scientific Facts, nonetheless suggested a long and brilliant career in which Latour is engaged with science as process as much as finished product. And it has led to two primary sets of reactions. On the one hand have been those defenders of the scientific faith, exclaiming in various languages, um, in particular English, mon Dieu, he is attacking everything we believe in. 
This reaction perhaps culminated in an exchange Latour had with a scientist retold for us in one of his most recent books, Pandora's Hope, in which the scientist cornered Latour and asked him point blank, I have a question for you. Do you believe in reality? Latour reports that the scientist was both relieved and puzzled by his answer to the affirmative. Can we trust this man, those defenders of science have long asked, as if admitting that science is even 1%, as if admitting that if science is even 1% constructed, launches one down a slippery slope to 100% relativism. Yet on the other hand, Latour has gathered considerable prestige as an academic whose attempts to understand the production of knowledge have led him to rethink the very grounds of modernity upon which, among other things, the principal divisions characteristic of the contemporary university have been constructed. Divisions of knowledge where nature and culture, object and subject, truth and meaning are largely confined to different sides of campus. This argument is perhaps best known in his book, We Have Never Been Modern, but is furthered in Pandora's Hope, where our provocateur proposes, among other things, the neologism factish in order to re reconsider the hard belief between fact and fetish, knowledge and belief. And so here we see Bruno Latour's important entry into science and religion. More recently, he has just returned from an exhibition in Germany he helped organize entitled Iconoclash, an exhibition devoted to suspending both belief and disbelief, the act of the iconophile, that is the faithful follower, and that of the iconoclast, the faithless critic, in three realms, science, religion, and art. So perhaps now we can understand why Latour's interests in science were never far removed from an interest in religion. And this is, of course, why we were so pleased that Professor Latour accepted our invitation to visit UCSB and present our final lecture in the 2002 Science, Religion, and the Human Experience series. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome Professor Bruno Latour, whose lecture tonight is entitled, The Specific Regime of Enunciation of Religious Talk. So my talk has a boring part of half an hour, but after that there are slides, so you will have some more fun with the slide part, but before that you have to go through the first half hour, I'm sorry to say. You won't understand a word that I'm saying because of my English, but um, it doesn't matter because you will have a slide anyway. <laughs> if such a famous, earnest, and learned professor as Hilary Putman had to apologize yesterday night for daring to speak about religion and experience. What I, a sociologist from far away France, should say. To talk to you tonight about this topic, I have no authority whatsoever, since I'm neither a theologian nor a philosopher of religion, nor even a specially pious person. Fortunately, religion might not be about authority and strength, but exploration, hesitation, and weakness. If so, then I should begin by putting myself in a position of most extreme weakness that I should better state at the beginning of his talk. William James, at the end of his masterpiece, Varieties of Religious Experience, says his form of pragmatism pertained to what he called a crass label, label sorry, that of pluralism. Well, I'm even crasser. I've been raised a Catholic, and worse, 
to my children who are not baptized, I cannot even speak of what I'm doing at church on Sunday. It is from this very impossibility of speaking to my friends and to my own kin about a religion that matters to me that I want to start tonight. I want to begin this speech by this hesitation, this weakness, this stuttering, by what I would call this speech impairment, not only my accent, French accent. Religion in my tradition, in my corner of the world, has become impossible to enunciate. But I don't think I could be allowed to talk only from such a weak and negative position. I've also a slightly firmer ground that gives me some encouragement in addressing this most difficult topic. If I've dared answering the kind invitation of Jim Proctor, it's also because I've been working for many years on offering other interpretations of scientific practice than common ones. It's clear that in an argument on science and religion, any change, however slight, however disputed, on the way science is considered, will have some consequences on the many ways to talk about religion. Truth conditions in science, religion, law, politics, technology, economics, is what I've been studying over the years in my program to complete an anthropology of a modern, or rather non-modern, world. Systematic comparison of what I call regimes of enunciation is what I am after. And if there is any technical argument in what follows, it's from this rather idiosyncratic comparative anthropology that they will come from. In a sort of analogy with speech act theory, and it's just an analogy, I'm devoted to mapping out the conditions of felicity of the various activities that in our culture are able to produce truth. Contrary to what some of you who know my work on science or might have heard of by hearsay, I'm only interested in truth-telling and its practical condition, in veridiction, as we say in French, not in debunking, not even in critique, and of course not in social explanation of science or of religion, in spite of the title. By the way, this book was 1979. I'm much older than you think. What was always the case for science is even more necessary for religion. Debunkers simply would miss the point. That truth is in question in science as in religion is not for me in question. The problem is how to become faithful to the right conditions of felicity of those types of veridiction. And now to business. I don't think it's possible to speak of religion without making clear the form of speech that is adjusted to this type of enunciation, of predication. Religion, at least in the tradition I'm going to talk from, namely the Christian one, is a way of preaching, of predicating, of enunciating truth in a certain way. It's literally, technically, theologically, a form of news, of good news, what in Greek was called evangelios, and that you have been translated by gospel. Thus, I'm not going to speak of religion in general, as if there existed some universal domain, topic, problem called religion which could allow one to compare divinities, rituals, belief, from Papua New Guinea to Mecca, from Easter Island to the city of Vatican. A faithful as one religion, as a son as one single mother, not many. There is no point of view from which one could compare different religions and still be talking religiously. As you see, my purpose too is not to talk about religion, but to talk to you religiously, at least 
religiously enough so that we can begin to analyze the conditions of felicity of such a speech act by demonstrating it in vivo tonight in this room what sort of truth condition it requires. Since the topic of this series implies experience, experience is what I want to generate. What I'm going to argue is that religion, again in my tradition, speaks of things, entities, agencies, situations, substances, relations, experiences, whatever the word, which are highly sensitive to the ways in which they are talked about. They are, so to speak, manners of speech, verb in John's interpretation. Either they transport the spirit they talk about and they can be said to be truthful, faithful, proven, experienced, self-verifiable, self or they don't transport, don't reproduce, don't perform, don't transport what they talk about and immediately without inertia they begin to lie to fall apart, to stop having any ground, any reference. Either they elicit the spirit they utter, and they are true, or they don't, and they are worse than false, they are simply irrelevant, parasitical. There is nothing extravagant, spiritual, or mysterious in beginning to describe religion talk in this way. We are used to others, perfectly mundane forms of speech, that are also evaluated not by their correspondence with any state of affair, but by the quality of the interaction they generate in the ways they are uttered. This experience, and experience is what we want to talk about, is common in the domain of love talks and more generally personal relation. Do you love me is not assessed by the originality of a sentence. None are more banal, trivial, boring, rehashed but rather by the transformation it operates in the listener as well as in the speaker. Information talks are one thing, transformation talks are one another. When they are uttered, something happens. A slight displacement in the normal pace of things, a tiny shift in the passage of time. You suddenly have to decide to get involved maybe to commit yourself irreversibly. We are not only undergoing an experience among others when we are thus dressed, but a change in the pulse and tempo of experience. Kairos is the word the Greek would use to designate this new urgency. Before going back to religious talk, in order to displace our usual way of framing it, I wish to extract two features from the experience we all have in uttering I hope we all have it, in uttering or listening to love-carrying sentences. The first one is that such sentences are not judged by their content, their number of bites, but by their performative abilities. They are mainly evaluated by this only question, do they produce the thing they talk about, namely lovers? Of course here I'm not interested in love as eros, which often requires little talk, I go, in my experience, but in love as agape, to use the traditional distinction. In love and junction, attention is redirected not to the content of a message, but to the container itself, the person making. One does not attempt to decrypt it as if it transported a message, but is as if it transformed messengers. And yet it would be wrong to say 
that they have no truth value because they have no informational, informational content. On the contrary, although one could not take P's and Q's to calculate their true value, it's a very important matter, one we devote many nights and days to decide whether those talks are truthful, faithful, deceitful, superficial, or simply fuzzy and vague. All the more so because such injunctions are in no way limited to the medium of speech. Smiles, sighs, silence, hugs, gestures, gaze, postures, everything can relay the argument. Yes, it is an argument, and a tightly won. But it's an odd argument which is largely judged by the tone with which it's uttered, its tonality. Love is an argument whose sentences are persons. Are we not all ready to give an arm and a leg to be able to detect truth from falsity in those trans talk that transport persons and not information? If there is one involvement we all have in truth detection, in trust building, it's certainly this ability to detect right from wrong love talks. So one of the conditions of felicity we can readily recognize is that there exist forms of speech, and again, it's not just language, that are able to transfer persons, not information, either because they produce in part personhood or because they produce new states, new beginnings, as William Jace would say, which are generated in the persons thus dressed. The second feature I wish to retain from a specific and totally banal performance of love talking is that they seem to be able to shift the way space is inhabited and time flows. Here again, the experience is so widespread that we might overlook its decisive originality. Although it is so common, it's not often described, except in a few Ingmar Bergman's movie. Hollywood eros occupies usually the stage so noisily that the subtle dynamics of agape is rarely heard. But we can share, I think, enough of the same experience to capitalize on it later. What happened to you, would you say, when you are thus addressed by love talking? Very simply put, you were far, you are now closer, proche in French. And lovers seems to have a treasure of private law to account for the reasons of those shift from distance to proximity. Space, but also time. You just had the feeling of inflexible and fateful destiny, as if a flow of time from the past to the ever diminishing present was taking you straight to death, or at least boringness, and suddenly, a word, an attitude, a query, a je ne sais quoi, and time flows again from the present. Possibilities arise. Fate is overcome. You breathe. You feel enabled. You hope. You move. In the same way as the word close captured the different way space is now inhabited, it's the word present that now seems the best way to explore what happened to you. You are present again and anew to one another. And of course, this is why your heart beats so fast, why you are at once so thrilled and so anxious, you might become absent and far again in a moment. A word badly uttered, a clumsy gesture, 
a wrong move, and instantly the terrible feeling of estrangement and distance, the despondency that comes from the fateful passage of time, all of that boredom falls over you again, intolerable, deadly. You suddenly don't understand what you are doing with one another, unbearable, simply unbearable. Have I not sketched even briefly a very common experience, the one acquired in the love crisis on both sides of this infinitely small difference between what is closed and present and what is far and absent, the difference that is marked so vividly by a nuance sharp as a knife, subtle and sturdy, a difference between talking rightly and talking wrongly. If we now take together the two features of love addressing I've outlined, we may convince ourselves that there exists a, a form of speech that is concerned by the transformation of messengers instead of a transport of information, b, is so sensitive to the tone in which it's uttered that it abruptly can, be, can shift through a decisive crisis from distance to proximity and back to estrangement, and from absence to distance and back. Of this form of talk, I will say that it represents, in one of the many literal ways of the word, it presents anew what it is to be present at what one says. And see, this form of talk is at once completely common, extremely complex, and not that frequently detailed in, de sorry, described in detail. Well, this is the atmosphere I want to benefit from in order to start again my predication. Since to talk, nay, to preach religion, is what I want to attempt tonight. So as to obtain enough common experience that we can analyze what happened afterward, if anything happened, of course, in the discussion time. I want to use the template of love addressing so as to rehabituate ourselves to a form of religious talk which, in my view, has been lost, unable to represent itself again, to repeat itself. We now know that what we are after is common, that it is subtle, but it's not very much described, but it easily appears and disappears, tell the truth, and then give the lie. The conditions of felicity of my own talk are thus clearly outlined. I will fail if I cannot produce, perform, elicit, educe what it is about. Either I am able to represent it to you again, that is to present it in a renewed and ordered presence, and I speak in truth, or I don't, and although I might have pronounced the same words, it's in vain that I speak. I would have lied to you. I am nothing but an empty drum that beats in the void. So I couldn't find the samples quote. My hotel doesn't have a Bible, which is a very rare thing in the States. <laughs> Usually you have a Gedeon. Three words are important then to respect my risky, risky contract with you. Close, present, and transformation. To give me some chance of succeeding in reenacting the right way to say religious things, at least in the verb tradition I've been raised into, 
I need to redirect your attention away from topics and domains thought to pertain to religion, but which might render you indifferent or hostile to my way of talking. And then I would lose, not because I didn't do the thing, but because you didn't do the thing. We have to resist two temptations in order for my argument to stand a chance to represent anything and thus to be truthful. The first temptation would be to abandon the transformation necessary for this speech act to function. The second will direct our attention to the far away instead of a close and present. To put it simply, but I hope not too provocatively, if when hearing about religion, you direct your attention to the far away, the above, the supernatural, the infinite, the distant, the transcendent, the mysterious, the misty, the sublime, the eternal. Chances are that you are not even begun to be sensitive to what religious talks try to involve you in. Remember, I'm using the template of love addressing to speak of different sentences with the same spirit, the same regime of enunciation. In the same way as those love sentences transform the listener in being close and present, the way of talking religion should bring the listener and also the speaker to the same closeness and to the same renewed sense of presence. If you are, by religious matters, attracted to the distant, the far away, the mysteriously encrypted, then you are gone. Literally, you are not with me. You remain absent-minded. You make a lie of what I'm giving you a chance to regain tonight. Do you understand what I'm saying? The way I'm saying it? The verb I'm setting into motion? No, you don't. The first attempt at redirecting your attention is to make you aware of a pitfall of what I will call double-click communication. If you use such a yardstick to judge religion talk, they will become exactly as meaningless, empty, boring, repetitive as love talks. And for the same reason, since they carry no messages, but transport, transform the messengers themselves. And yet, this is exactly what the standard of double-click communication wants us to obey. Transport without deformation whatsoever, accurate information about states of affairs which are not presently here. In most ordinary cases, what people have in mind when they ask, is this true, is such a double-click gesture, allowing immediate access to information. Bad luck, this is because this is also what gives the lie to ways of talking which are dearest to our heart. On the contrary, to disappoint the drive towards double-click, to divert it, to break it, to subvert it, to render it impossible is just what religious talks is after. It wants to make sure that even the most absent-minded, the most distant gazer, are brought back to attention so that they don't waste their time ignoring the call to conversion. To disappoint, first to disappoint. 
What does this generation requesting a sign? No sign will be given to them. Transport of information without deformation is not. No, it's not in the condition of felicity of religious talks. When the Virgin hears the angel Gabriel's salutation, she is so utterly transformed, says the venerable story, that she becomes pregnant with the Savior, rendered through her agency, present again to the world. Surely this is not a case of double-click communication. On the other hand, asking who was Mary, checking whether or not she was really a virgin, imagining pathway to impregnate her with spermatic rays, deciding whether Gabriel is male or female. These are double-click in questions. They want you to abandon the present time and to direct your attention away from the meaning of the venerable story. These questions are not impious, nor even irrational. They are simply a category mistake. They are so irrelevant that no one has to answer them. Not because they lead to unfathomable, sorry, that's a hard one, unfathomable, well, there are words I should better, profound mysteries. I had to take all the words which I can't pronounce in English. And my written English is better. But, but because their idiocy makes them generate uninteresting and utterly useless mysteries, they should be broken, ridiculed, interrupted, voided, as iconography does. I will show that in a moment with slides. The only way to understand stories such as that of the Annunciation is to repeat them. That is to utter again a word which produce into the listener the same effect, namely, which impregnates you, because it's you I am saluting, I am hailing tonight, with the same gift, the same present of renewed presence. Yes, tonight I am your Gabriel, or else you don't understand what I'm saying, and I'm a fraud. Not an easy task. I will fail, I know, I'm bound to fail. I speak again all odds. But my point is different. Either I repeat the first story because I retell it in the same efficient mode in which it was first told, or I hook up a stupid referential question to a messenger transfer one, and I do more than crass stupidity. I make the venerable story lie because I have distorted it beyond recognition. Paradoxically, by formatting question in the Procrustean bed of information transfer, so to get at what it exactly meant, I've deformed it, transmogrified it into an absurd belief, the sort of belief that weighs down religion and leads it toward the refuse heap of past obscurantism. The true value of our story depends on us tonight. Exactly as the whole history of lovers depend on their ability to reenact the injunction to love again. If they failed, it was in vain that they lived so long together. They are again far and absent. Note that contrary to what Wingenstein said in Hilary Putnam's lectures yesterday night, 
I didn't speak of irrationality, as if religious irrationality had somehow to be protected against an irrelevant excess of extension of rationality. Wittgenstein, when talking about the folly of a gospel, deeply misunderstand, in my view, what sort of folly it is by thinking it has not even tried to be reasonable. This is the quote from yesterday. I found that a very condescending form of tolerance. For me, rationality is never in excess. Science knows no boundary. And there is absolutely nothing mysterious or even unreasonable or even non-reasonable in religious talk except the artificial mystery generated, as I just said, by asking the wrong question, in the wrong mode, in the wrong key, to perfectly reasonable person-making argumentation. More precisely, we should differentiate two forms of mysteries, one which refer to the common, complex, subtle way in which one has to pronounce love talks for them to be efficacious. And it's indeed a mystery, but a mystery of ability, like good tennis, good poetry, good philosophy. Yes, a folly in that sense. And another mystery, totally artificial, which is caused by the undue short circuit of two different regimes of enunciation colliding with one another. The confusion between the two mysteries is what makes the voice of people quiver when they talk of religion, either because they wish to have no mystery at all, good, because there is no mystery anyway, or because they believe they are looking at some encrypted message they have to decode through the use of some special and esoteric grid reserved to initiate. But there is nothing hidden, nothing encrypted, nothing esoteric, nothing odd in religious talks. They are simply difficult to enact. They are simply a little bit subtle. They need exercise. They require great care. They might save those who speak them. To confuse talk-transforming messengers with talk-transporting messengers is not a proof of rationality. It's simply an idiocy, doubled by an impiety. It's as idiotic, 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 in, well, in France, we say idiotic. It is as idiotic as if a lover asked to repeat whether she loves her partner or not, simply push the button play of a tape recorder to prove that five years ago she had indeed say, I love you, darling. It might pre prove something, but certainly not that she has renewed her pledge to love presently. It's a valid proof, to be sure, a proof that she is an absent-minded and probably lunatic bitch. <laughs> Enough for double-click information. The two other features, closeness and presence, are much more important for our purposes. Because they will lead us to the third term of our lecture series, namely science. It's amazing that most speakers, when we want to show generosity with religion, I have to couch it in terms of its necessary irrationality. I sort of prefer, like Pascal Boyer, one of your speakers before, people like Boyer, who frankly wants to explain, to explain away, but to explain religion by highlighting the brain loci 
and the survival value of some of its most barbarous oddities. I always feel more at home with purely naturalistic account than with this sort of hypercritical tolerance that would ghettoize religion into a form of nonsense specialized in transcendence and feel-good inner sentiment. Alfred North Whited has put an end, in my view, to those who wish religion to embellish the soul with pretty furnitures. Religion, in the tradition I want to render present again, has nothing to do with subjectivity, nor with transcendence, nor with irrationality. And the last thing it needs is tolerance from open-minded and charitable intellectuals who want to add to the true but dry facts of science the deep and charming supplement of soul provided by quaint religious feelings. Here I'm afraid I have to disagree with most, if not all, of the former speakers of a science-religion confrontation because they are, to my eyes, talking like Camp David diplomats, drawing lines with a felt pen over some maps of the Israel-Palestine territories. They all try to settle dispute as if there was one single domain, one single kingdom to share in two, or exactly as in the terrifying instance of the Holy Land, as if two equally valid claims had to be established side by side, one for the natural, the other for the supernatural. And again, some speakers, like Zilot in Jerusalem, are rejecting the diplomatic niceties and they want to claim the whole land for themselves, either by driving the obscurantist religion folks on the other side of the Jordan River, or conversely, by drawing the naturalists into the Mediterranean Sea. I find those disputes, whether there is one or two domains, whether it's hegemonic or parallel, polemical or peaceful, equally moot. For a reason that strikes at the heart of the matter, they all suppose that science and religion have similar but divergent claims to reach and settle a territory, either of this word or of this other word. I believe, on the contrary, that there is no point of contact between the two. Sorry for Mr. Uh, Templeton. Uh, sorry, this is, <laughs> this is not very polite of me, of course. I realize that now. Uh, no more, let's say, than rabbit and frogs have to enter into any sort of direct ecological competition. I'm not saying that science and religion are incommensurable because one grasps the objective visible word of here and there and the other grasps the invisible subjective or transcendent word of beyond. But that even their incommensurability would be a category mistake. The reason is that neither science nor religion fits even this basic picture that would put them face to face, or even enough in relation to be deemed incommensurable. Neither religion nor science are much interested in the visible. It's science that grasps the far and the distant. As to religion, it does not even try to grasp anything. Now, my point might appear at first counterintuitive because here I wish to draw simultaneously on what I have learned from science studies about scientific practice and what I hope you have experienced in reframing religious talk with the help 
of love argument. Religion does not even try, if you have followed me until now, to reach anything beyond, but to represent the presence of that which is called in a certain technical and ritual idiom, the verb incarnate. That is to say, to say again that it's here, alive, and not dead over there, far away. Religion, in this tradition at least, does everything to render it visible through a constant redirection of the attention, a systematic breaking of the will to go away, to ignore, to be indifferent, blasé, bored. Conversely, science has nothing to do with the visible, the direct, the immediate, the tangible, the lived word of common sense, of sturdy matters of fact. Quite the opposite, as I've shown many times. It builds extraordinary long, complicated, mediated, indirect, sophisticated path so as to reach for concatenation of layered instrument, calculation, model, the worlds, and I insist like James and the Prol, which are invisible to the normal eye because they are too small, too far, too powerful, too abstract, too big, too odd, too surprising, too counterintuitive. Only through the laboratory and instrument networks can you obtain those long referential chains that allow you to maximize the two contrary features of mobility or transport and immutability or constant that both make up information, what I have called for this reason immutable mobiles. And notice here that science in action, science as it is done practically, is even further from double-click communication than religion. Distortion, transformation, recording, modeling, translating, all of those radical mediation are necessary to produce reliable and accurate information. If science was information without transportation, we would still be in complete obscurity about state of affair, distant from here and now. What a comedy of errors. When the debate between science and religion is staged, the adjectives are almost exactly reversed. It's of science that one should say that it reaches the invisible world of beyond, that she is spiritual, miraculous, soul-fulfilling, uplifting. By the way, it James, uh, James used she when he talks about science, which proved that political correctness was in James much long before it was actually accepted in California. And it's religion which should be qualified as being local, objective, visible, mundane, unmiraculous, repetitive, obstinate, sturdy. In the traditional portrait of a race between the scientific rabbit and the religious tortoise, two things are totally unrealistic, the rabbit and the tortoise. Religion does not even attempt to race to know the beyond, but attempts at breaking all habits of thought that direct our attention to the far away, to the absent, to the beyond, in order to bring attention back to the incarnate, to the renewed presence of what was before misunderstood, distorted, and deadly. 
science does not directly grasp anything accurately, but slowly gains its accuracy, its validity, its truth condition by the long, risky, and painful detour through the mediation of experiment, not experience, laboratories, not common sense, theory, not visibility, and is able to obtain truth at the price of mind-boggling transformation from one media to the next, thus to even assemble a stage where the deep and serious problem of the relation between science and religion could unfold is already an imposture, not to say a farce, that distorts science and religion, religion and science. The only protagonist who would dream of a silly idea of staging a race between the rabbit and the tortoise to make them face to face, the only barnum for such a circus is double-click communication. Only he, well, I put in a he because it deserves it, with this bizarre idea of transportation without transformation to reach faraway state of affair, could dream of such a confrontation, distorting the careful practice of science as well as the careful repetition of religious person giving talks. Only he can make both science and religion incomprehensible, first by distorting the mediated and indirect access of science to the invisible word through the hard labor of scientists into a direct, plain, and unproblematic grasp of the visible, and then in giving the lie to religion by forcing her to abandon its goal of representing anew what it is about and making all of us gaze absent-mindedly to the world of beyond. That she has no equipment, no competence, no authority, no ability to grasp, even less to reach. Yes, what a comedy of error. A sad comedy that has made being a rationalist almost impossible, since it would mean to ignore the workings of science even more than the goals of religion. Have I convinced you? No, I answer for you, I'm sorry. I'm sure I've not. So let me show you, let me demonstrate to you for a slide, those two regimes of invisibility that have been so distorted by the appeal to the dream of instant and unmediated communication. First, let me restate in one slide the argument I want to go from one opposition, that of science and religion in the camp David move, between the visible and the invisible, the near and the far away, to the second opposition that I think is much more respectful of their condition of felicity and the sort of efficacy they both have each with its own definition of faithfulness and accuracy. As I have shown elsewhere, and here, of course, Hilary Putnam is a great specialist of that, so I can go very fast, science is in nowhere a form of speech act that tries to bridge the abyss between words and the world in the singular. That would be amounting to the salto mortale, so ridiculed by James. Rather, science, as it is practiced, attempt to deambulate James' expression again, from one inscription to the next, by taking each of them in turn for the matter out of which it extracts a form. But form here has to be meant very literally, very materially, the paper in which you place the matter of a stage just preceding. Since an example is always better to render visible the invisible path 
that science trace through the pluriverse. Let's take an example. Some simple, of course, it's always a rat. Let's take an example, simple but telling. And with PowerPoint, it's even more powerful, I hope. In Jean, I, I've just been committed to PowerPoint, so I might have overdone it a bit, but you will forgive me, a beginner. In Jean Rossier's laboratory in Paris, they try to gain information on releasing factors of one single isolated neuron. Now, there is no unmediated, direct, unartificial way to render this neuron visible. So they have to begin with rats, which are first guillotined in very fine, whose brains, sorry, are, very, are guillotined in very fine slice. Sorry, the, then each slice is prepared in such a way that it remains alive for a couple of hours, then put under a powerful microscope, and then, on, sorry, this is the preparation, this is the preparation, and then, uh, PowerPoint is nice, but it gets confused here. Uh, and then on the screen of the television, whoops, coming, here it is. A micro syringe and a micro electrode are delicately inserted into one of the neurons on which the microscope is able to focus among the millions which are simultaneously firing. And this may fail because focusing on one neuron and bringing the micro syringe in contact with the neurons to capture the neurotransmitter while recording the electric activity is a feat few people are able to achieve. Then the activity is recorded, the products triggered by the activities are gathered through the pipette, and the result is written into an article which presents synoptically the various inscription. Now, I don't want at all to talk to you about neurons here, but simply to attract your attention, uh, attract your attention to the jump from one type of inscription to the next. It's clear but without the artificiality of a laboratory, none of his path for inscription where each plays the role of matter for the next step that put it, put it into a new form would produce a visible phenomenon. Reference is not the gestures of a locutor pointing with a finger to a cat purring on a mat, but a much riskier affair and a much dirtier business that connects a published literature on the top left outside the lab to published literature from the lab for many intermediation, one of them, of course, being the poor rats. The point I want to make is that these referential chains are very interesting contradictory features. They are producing our best source of objectivity and certainty, and yet they are artificial, indirect, multi-layered, there is no doubt that the reference is accurate, but this accuracy is not obtained by any two things resembling one another mimetically. But on the contrary, through the whole chains of artificial and highly skilled transformation, as long as the chain obtained, the true value of the whole reference is calculable. But if you isolate one inscription, if you extract one image, if you freeze frame the continuous path of transformation, then the quality of the reference immediately deteriorates. Isolated, a scientific image has no true value, although it might, in the mythical philosophy of science that is being used by some people, have a sort of shadow reference that is taken 
through a sort of optical illusion to be the model of a copy, although it's nothing but the virtual image of an isolated copy. Matter of fact, those famous matters of fact that are supposed by some philosopher to be the stuff of, out of which the visible common sense is made is actually nothing but an artificial misunderstanding of the artificial but productive process of scientific objectivity. What has been obtained by freeze-framing a referential path? There is nothing primitive, primeval in matters of fact. They are not the ground of mere perception. Now, all of that might be controversial, but I needed to take it to be well-known enough to be used as an uncontrovertible background so as to shed a new light on religion's regime of invisibility. So the seven first slides here are taken as a fact. Don't dispute it. You will have time to dispute it for the other part, which is, in the same way as there is a misunderstanding on the path traced by the deambulation of scientific mediation, there is, I think, a common misunderstanding on the path traced by religious images. I've just launched, as Jim reminded you, last Friday a huge exhibition I curated in Germany on this question called Iconoclash, not Clasm, Clash. And I could talk for hours about it, but I would bother you to death, so I won't. The only point I need at this point is that the traditional defense of religious icon in Christianity has been to say that the image is not the object of a latri, as in idolatry, but of a duly, a Greek term to say that a faithful, at the occasion of a copy, a virgin, a crucifix, a saint image, turn his or her mind to the prototype, the only original worth adoration. This is, however, a weak defense which never convinced the Platonist, the Byzantine, the Lutheran, or the Calvinist iconoclast, and certainly not Mullah Omar, when he had the Bamiyan Buddha put to the gun last year. In effect, the Christian regime of invisibility is as different from the traditional meek defense of the slide before than the scientific reference path is from a glorified matters of fact. What imageries has tried to achieve through countless feats of art is exactly the opposite of turning the eyes of a spectator to the model far away. Incredible pain has been taken to break the habitual gaze of the viewer so as to attract attention to the present state. Everything happens as if painters, carvers, patrons of the works of art are trying to break the image inside so as to render them unfit for normal informative consumption, as if they had wanted to begin to rehearse, to start a rhythm, a movement of conversion that is understood only when the viewer, the pious viewer, takes up the rhythm and the same tempo. This is what I call with my colleague Joseph Kerner inner iconoclasm compared to which the external iconoclasm looks always at least naive and mood, not to say silly. A few examples will be enough. In this Fra Angelico fresco in San Marco, Florence, 
The painter has multiplied ways of complicating our direct access to the topic. Not only is the tomb empty, a great disappointment at first for the women, but the angel's fingers point to an apparition of a resurrected Christ, which is not directly visible to the women because it's in the back. What can be more disappointing and surprising than the angel's utterances is no longer here. He has risen. Everything in this fresco is about the emptiness of the usual will to grasp. It's not about emptiness as in a mere deconstruction. It's, on the contrary, slowly bringing us back to the presence of presence. But for that, we should not look at the painting and what the painting suggests, but at what is now there present for us. How can one evangelist and then a painter like Brother Angelique better render, render vivid again the redirection of our attention? You look in the wrong place. You have misunderstood the scriptures. Look at the monk placed on the left. He is the representative of the occupant of a cell and a legend of a story in the etymological sense of the word legend. That is, he shows us how we should see. What does he see? Nothing. He looks with the inward eye of piety to what this fresco is supposed to mean. Elsewhere, not in the tomb, not in death, but in life. Even more bizarre is this case studied by Louis Marin of an annunciation by Piero in Perugia. If you reconstruct the picture in virtual reality, and Piero was a master at this first mathematization of a visual field, so it can be done with a computer very accurately, you realize that the angel actually remains invisible to the virgin. He or she, the angel, is hidden by the pillar. And with such an artist, this cannot be just an oversight. Pierrot has used the powerful tool of perspective to record his interpretation of what an invisible angel is, so as to render impossible the banal usual, trivial view that this is a normal messenger meeting the Virgin in the normal space of daily interaction. Again, the idea is to avoid as much as possible the normal transport of messages. Even when using the fabulous new space of visibility and calculation invented by scientist and painter in the Quattrocento, this same space which will be put to use so powerfully by science to produce those immutable mobiles that I've defined a minute ago. The aim is not to add an invisible word to the visible one, but to distort, to opacify, as Louis Marin said, the visible word enough, so that one is not led to misunderstand the scripture, but to reenact them truthfully. To paint the disappointment of the visible without simply painting another word of the invisible, which would be a contradiction in the terms, no painter is more astute as Caravaggio. In this famous rendering of the Emmaus pilgrims, and you remember they didn't understand at first that they had been traveling with the resurrected savior and they recognize him only when he breaks the bread at the inn table. Caravaggio reproduced in the painting this very invisibility 
just by a tiny light touch of paints on the bread, but redirect the attention of the pilgrims when they suddenly realize what they had to see. And of course, that's the whole idea, the attention of a viewer of a painting who suddenly realizes that he or she will never see more than those tiny breaks, these paint strokes, and that the reality they have to turn to it is not absent in death, as they were discussing along the way, but present now in its full and veiled presence. The idea is not to turn our gaze away from this world to another world of beyond, but to realize at last, at the occasion of his painting, this miracle of understanding what is in question in the scripture is now finally realized, is realized now, among the painter, viewers, and patrons, among you. Have you not, mis have you not understood the scriptures? He has risen. Why do you look far away in death? It's here. It's present in you. This is why our heart burned so much while he was talking. Christian iconography, in all its form, has been obsessed by this question of representing anew what it is about, and to make visually sure that there is no misunderstanding in the message transmitted, that it's really a messenger that is transforming what is in question in the speech act, and not a mere transfer of messages. In the venerable and somewhat naive theme of St. Gregory Mass, which has been bad after, banned after the Counter-Reformation. The argument takes much more cruder form than in Caravaggio, but it goes on with the same intensity. Pope Gregory is supposed to have seen during the Mass the host and the wine replaced in three dimensions by the real body of the suffering Christ with all the associated instrument of the Passion. Real presence is here represented yet again and then painted in two dimensions by the artist to commemorate the act of re-understanding by the Pope. This rather gore imaging will become repulsive to many after the Reformation. But the point I want to make is that each of those pictures, no matter how naive, send a double injunction. The first one has to do with the theme they illustrate. And most of those images, like the love talks I began with, are repetitive and boring. But then they send a second injunction that breaks the boring repetition of a theme and force us to remember what it is to understand the presence that the message is carrying. This second injunction is equivalent to the tone to the tonality with which we have been made aware of in love talks. It's not what you say that is original, but the tone that renew the presence. Lovers and religious painters and their patrons have to be careful to break with this tone the usual way of speaking, if they want to make sure that the absent-minded locutors are not led far away in space and time. This is exactly what happened suddenly to poor Gregory. In the boring repetition of a ritual, he is suddenly struck by the very speech act of transforming the host into the body of Christ. 
by the realization that his word, I've actually realized what he was saying. Don't think this is a naive image. Quite the opposite. It's a very sophisticated rendering of what it is to become aware again of the real presence of Christ in the Mass. But for that, you have to listen to the two injunctions at once. Don't think it is the painting of a, mar of a miracle, although it's also that. Rather, this painting it also says what it is to understand a miracle, literally, and not in the habitual blasé sense of the word. Even an artist so brilliant as Philippe de Champagne, in the middle of the 17th century, was still making sure that no one ignores that repeating the face of Christ, literally printing it on a veil, could not be confused with a mere photocopy. Notice that there is not one, but three linens there. The cloth out of which the canvas is made, sorry, James, thank you. Doubled by the cloth of what is called a Veronica, tripled by another veil, a curtain, this one in trompe l'oeil, that could hide the relic with a simple gesture of a hand, if one was silly enough to misunderstand its meaning. How magnificent to call vera icona, meaning, as you know, true image in Latin, what is exactly a false picture, thrice veiled. It is so impossible to take it as a photography, but that by a miracle of reproduction, a positive and not a negative of Christ's face is presented to the viewer. And those artists and printers and engravers knew everything about positive and negative. So again, this is not another side. But of course, this is a false positive, if I can use this metaphor. Since the vera icona, the true picture, is precisely not a reproduction in the referential meaning of the word, but a reproduction in the representational sense of the word. It says, beware, beware. To see the face of Christ is not to look for an original, for a true referential copy, but we transport you back to the past, back to Jerusalem. But a mere surface of cracking pigment, a millimeter thick, that begin to indicate how you yourself now, in this poor royal institution, should look at your savior. This face, although it seems to look at you so plainly, is even more hidden and veiled than the one of God presented to Moses, as Hilary reminded us yesterday. To show and to hide is what true reproduction does, on the condition that it should be a false reproduction by the standard of photographies, printing and double-click communication. But what is hidden is not a message beneath the first one, an esoteric information disguised in a banal information, but a tone, an injunction for you, the viewer, to redirect attention and to turn it away from the dead and back to the living. This is why when an image in the many iconoclast episode of our history is being broken, one always remains surprised. This Pieta was broken by some fanatic, but the fanatic never realized how ironic it was to add an outside destruction to the inner destruction that the statue itself represented so well. 
What is a pieta if not the image of a heartbroken virgin holding on her lap the broken corpse of her son with the broken image of God, his father? Although the bones are not be broken, as the scripture said. How could you destroy an image that is already that much destroyed? How would you want to eradicate belief in an image that has already disappointed all belief to the point that God himself, the God of beyond and above, lies here, dead, on his mother's lap? Can you go further into the self-critique of all images? Rather, would you not say that the outside iconoclast does nothing but add a naive and shallow act of deconstruction to an extraordinary deep act of destruction? Who is more naive, the one who sculpted this pieta of a kenosis of God, or the one who believes there are believers naive enough to grant existence to a mere image, instead of turning spontaneously their gaze to the true original God? Who goes further, the one who says there is no original? One way to summarize my point in conclusion is to say that we have been probably mistaken in defending the images by the appeal to a prototype they simply alluded to, which is, as I showed earlier, the traditional defense of, ima of images. Iconophily has nothing to do with looking at the prototype in a sort of Platonization stair climbing. Rather, iconophily is in continuing the process began by an image in a prolongation of a flow of images Saint Gregory continues the text of the Eucharist when he sees the Christ in his real and not symbolic flesh. And the painter continues the miracle when he paints the representation in a picture that reminds us of what it is to understand really what this old mysterious text is about. And I, now, today, continues the painter continuation of a story, reinterpretation of a text, if, by using slides, argument, tones of voice, anything, really, anything at hand, I make you aware again of what it is to understand those images without searching for a prototype and without distorting them in so many information transfer vehicles. I would see because I'm a bit late. Uh, sorry. My argument is that we might have made a slight misunderstanding with Moses' second commandment. The number of commandments varies according to the text. The second commandment is about thou shalt not make engraven images. And we might have lacked respect for mediators. God did not ask not to make images. What else do we have to produce objectivity and to generate piety? But he told us, it's a sort of misunderstanding of the Moses part. I mean, mistake in translation. But he told us not to freeze frame, not to isolate an image out of a flow that only gives it its real meaning. Well, I've most probably failed in extending this flow, this cascade of mediators to you tonight, to this very room. If so, then I have lied. I have not been talking religiously. I have not been able to preach but I have simply talked about religion, as if there was a domain of specific beliefs one could relate to. This then would have been a mistake just as great as that of a lover 
who when asked, do you love me, answered, I've already told you so many years ago, why do you ask again? Why? Because it's not use, it's no use having told me so in the past, if you cannot tell me again, now, and make me alive to you again, close and present anew. Thank you very much. Thank you very much to Bruno Latour. I guess each person will be the judge, but you spoke the truth to me, Bruno. <laughs> I'd like now to introduce Professor Mayfair Yang from the Department of Anthropology, who will offer some brief comments on Professor Latour's talk. I'm in the uh, uncomfortable position of uh, uh, having prepared a talk based on another paper, uh, prepared comments based on another paper that has some linkages, but uh, this paper has uh, presented uh, uh, a great deal of new material, so, uh, which I just heard right now along with the rest of you. So uh, bear with me as I uh, try to link the, the other uh, paper I read with uh, what has just been presented here. Um, Latour proposes uh, in the other paper that I read that there are four, three forms of address. Today he um, reduced it to a binary. But originally uh, he had uh, three different regimes of enunciation, speech, speech acts that perform what they speak about as they are being spoken. Uh, one was this information transfer of science uh, referential uh, in its nature, which he has just also uh, renamed a double-click communication. Um, a second one that he referred to, which uh, was dropped out uh, from today's discussion, is the group-making of uh, social identity construction, utterances uh, that um, produce a we as opposed to they. Um, and a third one, uh, which is uh, what uh, religious discourse does, is uh, the person giving or person enhancing. Or, um, and then he further elaborated it today to person transforming. Um, this third enunciation is a sort of address commonly used in religious speech acts, for which he wants to argue an autonomy and independent value not reducible to the other two uh, which dominate our world. Um, so it's, uh, for me, um, it wasn't entirely clear what the distinction between the second uh, and the third one was, uh, but that is um, not really relevant since uh, he's reduced it to two today. Um, it might be better um, also when he talks about presence and transforming. Uh, he um, clarified a lot of things for me. Uh, it would also, I think, one could add that um, religious speech acts are also co-presence uh, because what is affected is the co-presence of human and non-humans, of spiritual beings, deities, and the co-presence of uh, visual, the visual and the absent, the past and the present, or the past in the present, 
the natural, supernatural, and the human cultural all together at the same time. Um, I think it, um, by focusing on speech acts though, um, Latour is uh, very much shaped by one particular tradition and that is the Christian doctrinal tradition because uh, uh, there are other religious traditions um, where uh, speech is not as important and um, you know enunciations and verbs are not important. For example, the first uh, phrase of the Tao Te Ching, the way, uh, says that the Tao that can be spoken is not the eternal Tao. And those who know the Tao do not speak. So um, I just want to bring out that uh, speech is not all there is to uh, religious, um, religious experience. But I do concur with Latour's general lament uh, that with the rise of secularization, uh, and a modernity whose epistemology splits the study of the human from non-human and the social from the natural, uh, which he says never happened. Uh, but I think that a very um, persistent attempt is still continuing today. Uh, we have, with this rise of secularization, we have seen a tremendous loss of connectedness with our past and with the world of the others of the West or of the non-professional classes of rural areas and of the, some of the working classes. Um, Post-colonial theorist Dipesh Chakrabarti uh, made a similar point, I think, when he said, in understanding subaltern forces, we must resist Western historicism and the logic of secular rational calculations inherent in the modern conception of the political. Instead, we must, we must uh, stretch the category of the political to include the agency of gods, spirits, and other supernatural beings. I entirely agree with Latour that many of us are disenchanted with the disenchantment of the world and with the way that religion has become so shrunken, defanged, and neutralized in its current form of irrelevance as an extravagance of individual spiritual quest tolerated by a society that knows that other things really run the show. Here Latour is on common ground with anthropologist Talal Assad, who argued that religion's detachment from power and its impoverished status in many psychologized understandings of religion is actually a product of a particular religion's historical trajectory, that of a highly rationalized Protestantism. It seems that everywhere but the West, we see the power of religious forces in modernity, despite modernity or the att attempts at modernity, if modernity never happened. The Chinese government today, heir to a century of repeated campaigns by the modern state and modernizing elites to demolish, quote unquote, backward religion and, quote, superstition, recognizes the power of religious force as it scrambles to develop more artful strategies of keeping the post-socialist revival of religion and ritual among the rural and marginalized urban people in check. We see the dynamism and creativity as well as terrifying specter of religious nationalism in Hindu nationalism and Islamic anti-colonialism and anti-modernism. On the last point, I share with Latour the wariness of religious revivals that assume the oppressive form of total institutions, which make secularism sometimes more palatable. 
Latour observes that religion does not have to be all-encompassing like this. They must be ready to transform themselves instead of adhering to any rigid doctrine in the face of the flux of history and knowledge. Um, and I think that it, with his slideshow, he uh, really demonstrated a parallel, if not uh, commensurability, of uh, uh, religious knowledge or religious direct access to the religious realm uh, with a sci science's access to uh, quote-unquote reality. There's a parallel in the fact that uh, both are mediated experiences. There is no direct unmediated um, access to those realms which uh, religion and science uh, are searching for and trying to um, grasp. So um, I think that uh, one thing he did uh, in the previous article that I read um, which uh, I think is very valuable, is to undertake uh, an analysis of how religious um, messages and uh, transformative uh, present-giving experiences travel through time. And I think this is quite closely connected with, with what he presented today about uh, the mediation of images, uh, the flow uh, of images transforming one to another. Um, instead, and, and I think this point is very valuable for um, trying to figure out how religion can still remain alive uh, in this world of ours. Instead of a dead and inert letter copied from one generation to another by, by unimaginative scribes alienated from life, he envisions a long series of messages which must be translated, reinterpreted, and represented by the message receivers of different times and places. Dead letters like the rigid policies of the Catholic Church uh, who judged against the Jesuits who wanted to accommodate Chinese ritualism and translate Christianity into its language in the 17th century China. This sort of dead letter production led to the incomplete spread of Christianity to that part of the globe. However, what Christianity failed to accomplish in China, the modernizing Chinese elite brought about themselves. Their failure to translate Western discourses of modernity into the languages of Chinese ritualism, ancestor worship, popular deities, and so forth, led to or resulted from the modernizing elites and states embracing or total conversion to science, social evolutionism, and nationalism, and the ending of several millennia of flexible and creative transmissions from the Chinese past, which included the absorption of foreign Buddhism. Speaking of ritual, there is um, no better way of avoiding the reduction of religion into belief that th than through the repetition of ritual. Um, in the other paper, um, I think that Latour spent more time uh, sympathetically arguing for the independent status uh, of religion. And he talked about how religion uh, was assigned uh, the status of belief uh, and irrationality uh, created for it uh, by science. But I think that um, uh, it's easier to fall into belief if you have a kind of enunciatory religion than if you have a ritualized religion. 
Uh, rituals, uh, according to anthropologist Roy Rappaport, rituals are performatives whereby messages from the past are embodied and carried through bodies in movement. Since there is no difference between message transmitters and recip message recipients in the enactment of ritual, these transmitter and receivers accept these messages through their bodies regardless of whether they believe or not, just by the fact that they are participating in the movements of ritual. Rituals are uh, how most religious traditions transmit their messages through time. Uh, I think that is actually a more dominant um, experience of uh, a more a wider uh, variety of uh, religious uh, traditions than the, um, the more rationalized uh, one of uh, Christianity, uh, of uh, late Christianity. I think um, being um, an anthropologist of, of religion, um, I think it's also uh, important to, um, to have some further inquiries and delve into uh, different sorts of questions such as what leads certain religious traditions at certain times to become totalizing and incapable of adjustment? Are certain religious traditions more prone to this than others? Are monotheisms more totalizing than polytheisms or animisms? What leads one religious tradition to accept the position or status laid for it by science, that is the status of belief, uh, chosen by individuals? Um, so what leads one religious tradition to concede to science that the primary orientation of the world is and should be referential, and that empirical truth, referential knowledge, and instrumental reason are the highest values? What leads another religious tradition in another situation to refuse this position, to embed religion in the exercise of power or counter tactics of power, to power, while at the same time not demolishing science but restraining it. And I would like to have more details of how Latour envisions a non-totalizing religious world which is neither anti-science or anti-modern, uh, but non-modern, as he says, which can help steer scientific inquiry as well as incorporate some of its findings and elements. So tearing down the boundaries between the study of humans and non-humans is definitely one step in this direction, uh, but I would like to hear more about the next steps. My last point, I think, um, is that Latour has embarked on a very valuable and important quest to acknowledge the role of religion, uh, to bring out uh, the incommensurability of the two types of discourses, uh, religion and science. Um, however, uh, his examples um, and his approach to religion is limited so far to the Christian tradition. I would like to see him or others expand this quest to explore the issues of globalization, westernization, colonialism, and post-colonialism. Since it was a branch of Christianity which facilitated the development of science, and since science has so much obscured the force of religion, it would stand to reason that exploring other non-Western, um, perhaps non-monotheistic religious traditions might unearth a, a larger, richer repertoire of religious strategies 
to both accommodate, incorporate, and delimit scientific inquiry and practice. Thank you. Professor Bruno Latour, thank you so much for this final lecture in our 2002 Templeton Research Lecture Series. Thanks also to Professors Hancock and Yang.